0: Sophia Sergei studied classical music from a young age. She spent her days practicing Beethoven piano sonatas. Then one day, she
1: went over to a friend's house. Um, The older brother, who was a very cool older brother, put on an LP. It was Scorpions. and it was Beethoven incorporated with heavy metal music. And I thought, oh wow, what is that? That's like Beethoven on steroids. And then here's Whitesnake and here's Iron Maiden and and, uh, Guns N'
0: Roses. And I just thought it was so symphonic. So she went home and told her parents she was gonna buy the LP for Iron Maiden
1: they looked at me and they said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's like this new symphony that I discovered. So when I when I bought the LP and I put it on the, on the record player, then I said, oh, that's the kind of music I want to write. And they, they were just horrified. They were like, oh, all this classical music training and you're going to write heavy
0: metal music? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, translations from musical to linguistic to cultural My first guest is Bonaventure Bala. He's a translator and a professor at Norfolk State University. Bonaventure, you speak seven languages, including a couple I've never heard of. Would you name the languages you're familiar with and a little bit about how you came to speak them?
2: I was born in a multilingual society because in Africa, especially in my country, we speak 200 languages. 200 languages, which is a lot. And so for anybody to survive linguistically, he or she needs to speak at least three languages. Okay, and so right from the beginning, I was speaking my first native language, which is Bétis and French. Since um, I was five years old, French became my... My first language. Additionally, <clears throat> I study one more African language because we were just immersed by all these languages. And then, when I <clears throat> when I go to high school, when I go to middle school, I was introduced to Latin. So I study Latin, English, Spanish. And subsequently, I started practicing practicing karate. My master was Japanese, and so he was teaching karate in Japanese.
0: (laughs) Tell me about the 200 languages in Cameroon that you mentioned. Do most people in Cameroon understand several versions of
2: those languages? Since there are so many languages, most people speak what is called pidgin fish in English is like a Creole. It's a combination of, and so when you go to the market to buy some fish, some vegetable or rice anything, since so many people speak different languages, it becomes impossible to, to communicate, to interact with your, your, your businessmen. And so you are gonna use Creole, Creole language, essentially a mixture of, let's say, of Cameroon languages, 10% of English, and 30% of French words. You know, when I saw that you also spoke a
0: language in Cameroon called Fang, F-A-N-G, I was Googling it. As I was listening to this, I thought it was so musical. Can you relate to that?
2: Yes, yes. Music is embedded in African languages. Let me give you an an example. A word like... uh, and enjoy, enjoy or appetite, appetite, enjoy is ZAM. Okay. But if you change the rise and fall of the melody of the voice, international, then it becomes ZAM. ZAM means leper, which is a disease. ZAM means enjoy or appetite. ZAM means leper, disease. Uh Uh, And so, based on how you modulate your voice, based on how you use the music quality of your voice, you change the meaning of the word. Zam, zam. When Bantu guy speaks, it is as if he or she were
0: singing. You know, you generally translate, when you're translating... French and Spanish into English, also French to English, then Spanish, that kind of thing. What is the hardest part of translating into English, would
2: you say? Translating prepositions. Prepositions? Yeah. And culture. For instance, when I translate to, to in English, maybe in in French, sometimes I out, in English can be on in French and so forth. So you don't have the same prepositions. When you use out in French, you will use in in English. When you use off in French, you, might, you, you, you can use to in English and, and so forth. So you don't use the same preposition. You have to think, essentially, you have to think in the target language to prevent yourself from making mistakes. Because they are not the same, prepositions are not the same in Spanish, French, or in English.
0: What about the hard part of translating when the cultures are different?
2: What you should do is to give a gist of the word, to just give a gist of the word. And then you, you put footnotes and give the whole meaning of the word. Let's say you translate the word griot, the griot. The griot is like a bard, equivalent of a bard, but it's not, it, it goes far beyond the bard. The griot is an expert, an expert of speech, a speech expert, the griot. He's also a king's advisor. He's also a lawyer. He's also a <laughs> medical doctor. He, he, he also he knows the Quran. He also um, gives a protocol, so he, he has so many functions in African culture, in West African culture, and so this it doesn't it doesn't have any exact equivalent in English, and so one should do. You can say the bard, B A R D the bard, but it is not. The bat, it, it goes far beyond the bat because he has so many functions. The has so many functions. So you just say the bat, then on your footnote, you say, actually, the griot is the bat. He's also a chief of protocol. He's a speech expert, a king's advisor, genealogist, historian, translator, phytotherapist, lawyer, Okay, so you just give the gist (laughs) of what the griot is, and then you provide the full meaning of the griot on your footnotes. Across all the languages you know,
0: are there some words that are special favorites of yours? I know you're also a poet, and there must be some words that you particularly enjoy and revel in.
2: Yes, a word like numinous, numinous, N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S. N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S, numinous, which yes. means endowed with divine power. Numinous, let's say numinous, leader, leader endowed with divine power, like Nelson Mandela, for instance. It sounds like you enjoy your Latin especially. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, cornucopia, a cornucopia of blessings. Cornucopia means a myriad of, of something, cornucopia. Essentially, the, the idea of cornucopia is based on abundance, abundance and richness. Copia in Latin means abundance. Cornu means horn.
0: Of all your languages, do you have a favorite? Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Or things that you enjoy about each one. You know, one is musical, another is filled with Latin, you know, that kind of thing.
2: I prefer my first language, which is Betty. Yes. But Betty in itself is not, does not give me, does not provide me with all the assets and info language. And so I prefer Betty for its cultural richness. I prefer French for, how can I say it? Because French. <laughs> French is musical. It's musical, but different type of music.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've, I can hear the music in French. Yes.
2: Yes. Uh huh. So we choose, let's say, uh, Fr- Betty first, French, and uh, English will come right after. You know, there's a concept called diglossia, diglossia in linguistic or triglossia. Diglossia means the uh, functions functions of two languages. Triglosia, functions of three languages. Why? Because uh, certain languages have certain functions. And, so, and that's why I, I, can, I can better say something in French, but not be able to express exactly the same thing in English. This is called... Diaglosia, because both languages have different functions. You know, when you said, I miss my first
0: language, I love my first language. Isn't that true? Whenever we've traveled and come back, I think we're so warm to hear the familiar, right?
2: Exactly. What
0: what does your first, just closing your eyes and thinking about what you miss and love about your first language, describe that? What do you see?
2: (laughs) My first language is associated with music, love, family, and mountains. I love mountain because I was born in the mountains. <laughs> so that's why I see in my mind's eye, the, the eye of my soul. Can you close out with a,
0: um, a parting words in Betty?
2: Yes. Zamba adimia amu angavebia akuma. Zamba Adimbia Amu God loves us because He gave He gave us plentifulness, abundance.
0: Thank you. Bonaventure Bala, thank you so much for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Bonaventure Bala is a translator and a professor at Norfolk State University. composer. Sophia Sergey sees her work as translation. Sergey is a composer and a professor of composition at William and Mary. She says music is the universal language that can translate our most painful and vulnerable experiences. Sophia, do you think of your work as a composer translating your experiences from life?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: Since I was five
1: years old and I started writing music and it was uh, truly uh, all the senses uh, on overload needing desperately to express themselves. So music was my medium from a very young age.
0: I want to play a piece that you composed called Dialogues. And this is the dynamics between a romantic couple. And you've got movements that you've named, discourse, teasing, want to cuddle, nerves, quiet time, and harmony. Let's start out with Discourse. I'm imagining that here is where talking and negotiating is happening.
1: That's right. It could be about bills, or it could be about dinner, or it could be about the children. You know, yes, it's that discourse. That it's not quite an argument, but it is definitely lively and it's engaging. And you know, one opinion uh, needs to be heard, and the other opinion needs to be heard, and kind of come to a, a resolution uh, by the end of the of, uh, of discourse. Yes.
0: I love that you followed it with a movement you call teasing. Charmingly, you labeled this next movement after teasing, Wanna Cuddle? Mm-hmm. <laughs> play another piece. I'm not going to say the name of it. I just want to play this part of it first, okay? Okay. And this piece is? Towards the Flame. I know this is a moth to fire or any of us to the thing that attracts and destroys, right? That's right.
1: But it's also a very cyclical piece. It's about um, cycles of life uh, and, uh, and the cycles that we go on a daily on a daily journey, you know, uh, whether it's every day or the longer cycles, uh, the cyclical aspect of it, um, it's almost like
0: there is no end to life. I loved the crescendo of, of moths heading for the light one after another and being
1: beaten back. Why don't we listen to this um, section of the piece and then I can tell you what I had in mind.
0: Was that one moth dying and now others are coming?
1: Yes. Um, and uh, I mean, that's magical that uh, music in itself can uh, can create that sort of common um, story. It is storytelling. And as, at least for me, mu- the way I write music, it's always storytelling.
0: Along with your composition work, you spent time when you were younger working in an orphanage in Nairobi, How did that come to be? And tell me about what you experienced with the kids there when it came to music and their feelings. Well, uh, this was back in 2009
1: and um, it was a service trip. I actually went to Kenya to build a a kitchen in an orphanage uh, in the largest slum uh, adjacent to Nairobi called Kibera. And... um, when I arrived there, uh, I took some instruments with me thinking that I would engage with, uh, with the kids uh, during lunchtime and uh, they'd teach me some songs and I'll teach them something. So, but I also had a, um, a microphone uh, with me that I, I knew there was no electricity or scarce electricity, but somehow I brought it with me and carried, carried it along. Um, and so I started observing and... Um, Uh, It was in, again, as I said, 2009. So it was uh, post-civil unrest, uh, uh, post-election 2008. And uh, these kids had lost their parents. Um, There were about 300 of them. And uh, some of them, age four up till 17, um, went through horrific uh, circumstances to then end up in the orphanage, this particular orphanage in Kibera. So the social workers were... um, engaged on a daily basis trying to get the story out of the kids you know what happened to them and um, big smiles in their faces during uh, recess and then each one of them would go to the social workers office and then they would come out and the smile was gone almost like their soul was sucked out of them every single time they went there and I and it was very striking to me so I talked with social workers and I said what do you guys do and he said well we're just trying to get their story so that we can see if they have any relatives living somewhere and we can connect them with, with other family members. And But but they shut down. So I, I had an idea, you know, they were always intrigued with this microphone that I had with me. And I said, who who wants to touch this? And so a, a little boy came up and he was about 15 and he picked the microphone and he started beatboxing. Um uh, and again there's no electricity so then another boy came up um his name was Abdul and he started rapping freestyling in in uh, shang which is english swahili mix and so then i had an idea i said to him can you uh, tell me what you want to be when you grow up and maybe you know who your mom and dad and you know if you have any siblings and you know something that that was painful but then how you're going to overcome it and he just started freestyling, telling the story about what happened the previous year to him. And it was like a light bulb above my head when I thought, oh, wow, well, um, who else wants to do this? And all 300 hands went up. That was the beginning of me realizing that uh, music is a, is truly a tool for social change because Um, We were able to document the stories of of the kids um, in a very um, non-threatening way. Uh, I'm not going to say non-painful because anytime we revisit trauma, it is painful. But music had a healing um, effect on them in a way that it was collective. Uh, It was also fun. It was a competition. It was also creative. So um yeah that 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 was uh, absolutely amazing. Um it also is a universal language in many ways because in especially in Africa um it is a hip hop and music in general is a means to advocate for social issues, um, sometimes political issues, uh, uh, health issues, uh, in a much faster uh, way than, than, say, pamphlets or, or, or other kind of schooling. So, yeah, eye-opening. And so I went back two more years, uh, two more consecutive summers, and, and did similar work with music.
0: We just have time for one more piece, and I'd like to play a piece you wrote called Indecent Proposal. Let me start it off here.
1: Very, very rhythmic um, and rhythm is part of my blood I', I, I mean, the Middle eastern background is is very strong there and all of that but I love hip hop and I and as I said you know I, I love um, heavy metal and in intriguing layers of of, uh, of beats are, are, are just a lot of fun so this is actually a, a performed uh, live the violinist is a live performer it, it, it gets to extremes uh, kind of like um you know, I, I, I draw from uh, from the adrenaline uh, of extreme sports, say, um, you know, ski jumping or, or um, snowboarding, uh, you know. Uh, and I put that adrenaline into what it takes to play this piece if you are a, a, a virtuoso.
0: I love this. The performer is doing something that violinists do with their bow when it's bouncing on strings. Yes. Called a ricochet
1: I remember the violinist, uh, and his name is Kostas Anastasopoulos, a fabulous violinist uh, in Greece, in Athens. Uh, and it was written for him. Um, he asked for something extreme, so I delivered something extreme. And uh, and he, he called and said, This is unplayable. And I said, um, I'm not so sure it's unplayable because I can hack through it and I'm not a violinist, you know? <laughs> um, he said, okay, well, let me give it a shot. And then, then he called back about an hour later. He's like, oh no, it's playable. I just need to practice a lot. And I said, yes, yes, exactly. And he said, so what did you have in mind? Did you have in mind like, you know, cats in a back alley, like fighting for a bonefish? And I said, no, that's not quite what I had in mind. So he said, "Okay, then I'm not going to think about that." I said, "Yeah, I think you need to think more about um, you know, it's the middle of the day on a Greek island perhaps and there there's the sun is scorching. It's just so hot." And the stones, uh, the limestone is sizzling, and you can see the sparkles of the sun on the on the water, uh, just just like you know, jumping everywhere. And you know you need to get into that water to cool off, and but you can't until the very end of the piece when you finally dive in and and you can you can relax. Uh, but until then, it's almost like a mirage. You see it, but you're in the desert and you're being scorched by this by the heat. So that's kind of like the intensity that. You you need to be performing. Um, and then then uh, we went back and forth and he said, "No, I thought, I, th- I think I figured it out. I think I know what it is." He's like, "Oh, uh, so, okay. So what is it?" And he's like, "Well, it's like ice climbing. And I said, oh, and you would know about ice climbing because Greece has glaciers. And he said, no, no, I just imagine that I have my crampons on and I'm, I'm, I'm digging in and I'm climbing a peak. And once I get to the peak, it's the expanse uh, uh, that I can see, that's the end of the piece. But in the meantime, I'm just surrounded by ice and I have to navigate on the thinnest of ice just to get there. So I thought, wonderful, that's great. I'll go with that. <laughs> But I think, uh, you know, in in, in the last um, few years, I've kind of calmed down, (laughs) you know, into a more like now it's about (laughs) sailing and about, you know, swells, uh, you know, ebbing and flowing and and uh, and and. uh, again, the breathing, uh, the circular breathing. So a little bit more uh, spiritual. But at, at the same time, you know, the rhythm is always there. It's just not as intense. It, it's um, it's almost like this uh, pulsating cicada sound. And when you're outside at night, and you hear the cicadas uh, or the crickets along with the cicadas and the bullfrogs at night. Um, that pulsating sound that is equally intriguing rhythmically, perhaps even more virtuosic. But how do you capture that in instrumentation that, that creates that sizzling effect without it necessarily being, you know, a matter of life and death, you know?
0: Well, Sofia, Sergey, this has been a delight. Thank you for talking with me and With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sofia Sergey is a composer and a professor of composition at William & Mary. The first Resonate Podcast Festival takes place October 14 and 15 in Richmond, Virginia. The workshops and performances feature Sharon Mashihi of Appearances and Nick Vander Kolk of Love & Radio. ResonatePodfest.com This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. On some level, every book is an active translation. Kyoko Mari has spent her career as a writer looking back at her Japanese upbringing through the lens of her American life. Mari is a creative writing professor at George Mason University and the acclaimed author of many award-winning works of fiction and nonfiction, including Shizuko's Daughter, Yarn, The Dream of Water, and One Bird. A note to listeners, this interview includes discussion of suicide. Kyoko, you lived in Japan until you were 20, and then in the U.S. ever since, when you write... What are the layers of cultural translation that go into your works? Are you aware of the roots of both?
3: You know, I know that there is a kind of interpretation or translation going on, but no more. I, I'm not as any more conscious of when something comes from Japan um, than, say, like if I am writing about nature. You know, if I write about birds, I know my readers really do not know birds except, you know, robins and sparrows perhaps. (laughs) So there's a lot of like translating what does that really mean, you know, to a person sitting, a city person who looks out the window and sees birds. So I think I'm translating everything. I mean, uh, uh, writing is translation in every instance in that there's a lived experience or some knowledge you, you have in a general way that has to be fixed into a few sentences.
0: In some of your writing, there's real Japanese cultural knowledge that you're sharing with American readers and all readers. As in the essay you wrote about women and clothing, I love that. Could you please share about what you were explaining about women and clothing?
3: Um, so, this, this is the essay that I wrote recently, uh, you know, in, in conjunctions, right? It's called Dress to Live, Dress to Cure. And um, it's I mean, the thing I realized was in Japan, like when I, you know, my mother was really into clothes. I mean, she would take me shopping and we would go shopping together all the time. And, you know, shopping for clothes was like her, um, one of her sort of pleasures. And, you know, I realized much later that she was into clothes partly because that, You know, she didn't really own much else. I mean, you know, we lived in a very privileged family. My father made a lot of money. We were really, you know, pretty well off. But if my mother were to have left my father, she wouldn't even have had my brother and me, because we belonged to our father's family. You know, we were almost like our father's family's property. And if she were to have left, she could perhaps have taken all of her wardrobe and gone and lived with her parents. So I think clothes became this thing that was at least hers. And even though it was all my father's father's money, you know, how she spent money on her clothes and mine, you know, that, I mean, my father was just too busy to look into that. And I really felt like that gave her a sense of autonomy. I mean, the, the, the little autonomy she had. And um, because of this, I really came to also appreciate clothes. And it was also so much fun to, you know, go shopping with her. And because I was a girl, I got to go shopping with her. My, my mother would actually leave my little brother with, you know, one of my aunts or the neighbors. And she and I would just go shopping. And, you know, I still remember that fondly.
0: Your books have been translated into many languages including Japanese. Are you involved in those translations? Have you read them in let's say
3: Japanese? So my first book Cisco's Daughter was translated into Japanese after it was translated into German and Dutch and I think also Korean. So by the time the book was translated into Japanese I was, you know, I was used to this idea that it would be written and read in a language I didn't understand in any way. I mean, I didn't take German in college, so I have no idea what German is. So, you know, I had already kind of let go of the idea that it was about me. Um, I did read like a chapter of it after it came out. And by then, I, I had almost kind of forgotten parts of my novel. By then, it had been, you know, some years since I wrote the novel in English. And um, so when I read it in Japanese, I really thought, wow, what a sad story. But <laughs> just, right. I forgot that this, this part was so sad. Um, but I didn't read the whole thing because, you know, I know how it's going to turn out.
0: You know, your first memoir was about people from your very difficult childhood in Japan. Your mother committed suicide when you were 12. You never had that one translated into Japanese. Why?
3: I know. When it came out, you know, but it wasn't like there was this huge interest, you know, in people wanting to translate it in Japanese anyway. But I really didn't, like, push for it to be translated because... know, it's one thing to write about my family in English, (laughs) and then it's quite another to have it be published in Japan in Japanese. I mean, at the time, I felt like that would be kind of a bigger deal.
0: To clue people in, just very briefly, your mother committed suicide, and your feeling is to escape a horrible marriage, and your father and his mistress at that time, later your stepmother, were very cruel to you. And when you came to America, largely it was just escaping all that. and never really went back except to visit.
3: Exactly. I never wanted to, you know, go back there to live. And it wasn't even just my father and my stepmother, although they were an important part of why I couldn't go back. You know, they became really kind of tied into this whole idea of... I mean, if I had stayed in Japan... I don't think I could have like not lived with my parents because, I mean, maybe things are different now, but, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s in Japan, you know, if you come from what is considered to be a good family, you know, where, you know, your parents have money and, you know, you have reputation, or your family has reputation, a woman didn't just go and live by herself. After, you know, finishing high school or finishing college or whatever it may be, unless unless I got married, I would have had to like just stay living with my you know father and my stepmother. And, it you know, I didn't want to live with them, but I also didn't want to live in a society where that was the case. So it was really important, you know, to leave and not go back, you know, to the country or to their house. You know, to me, that was like pretty much the same.
0: I'm touched by a detail in one of your early young adult novels. You write, Megumi's mother has planted flats of spring seedlings, their heads bent down like the cracked seeds stuck on top, like tiny helmets. And she realizes her mother has grown the plants, only to fool her into thinking she wasn't going away. It's a really arresting detail, a great noticing by you.
3: Well, thank you. You know, my mother also like grew plants. But when I was in that detail came from, you know, remembering that and also the fact that I am a gardener. So I know what seedlings look like when they come up and they look exactly like that. And, you know, I mean, my mother never did that to fool me. But um, when I was in Japan on one of my visits, I did um i um visited um uh, a school friend of mine who i knew was not in a happy marriage you know she didn't go on about it but it was clear And she had a daughter and she would never have been able to leave that marriage. But I saw her also starting the flats, you know, of seeds. And I think when I sat down to write that novel, which was after my visit, you know, a couple of years later, I still remembered that. And I thought, yeah, if and, you know, the thing that's interesting about fiction is it is a kind of translation in that it's a translation of something that happened in nonfiction. And if you write fiction kind of based on that, it becomes a kind of translation of from uh, the language of, you know, reality to the language of, you know, fiction. And in that, all these things got kind of mixed in the ceilings, my, you know, girlfriend's unhappy marriage, the memory of my mother's unhappy marriage and the fact that neither one of these women could escape.
0: What are you working on now? Is it continuing these themes from childhood?
3: So I have a book manuscript that's out now trying to find a publisher that's about living with cats and also looking at birds outside my window. So, you know, that isn't directly about my childhood. It really um, kind of describes my, my adult life, but there are like, like, um, returns to, you know, stories about my childhood. Like my mother used to um, feed um, birds on her balcony. You know, she would put out seeds and, you know, the sparrows would come and we would sit inside and watch the sparrows. And and I did write about how interesting I found that, that you know, my mother is one of six children. And um, she was the only huh. one who really wanted to think of wildlife as Sort of pet like almost you know like we, we saw the sparrows, and she claimed that she could she could recognize some of the sparrows, even though they all looked the same, because of their behavior <laughs> um, yeah, kind of fable like you know in a lot of fairy tales. Um, Somebody would rescue a bird and then a bird would be turned, you know, to give them riches. I mean, this was like a very kind of standard theme of Japanese fables. And I think that was like my mother's relationship to birds. So I am still writing about these things as I contemplate our relationship to you know, to, to wildlife and to companion animals. And, you know, they're completely different. I mean, I have, you know, my cats are totally protected. They don't go outside. I don't even allow them to go out into the hallway of our co-op birds. They come and go and I give them, you know, seeds. I I feed them. But what happens to them when they're not at my window, there's like nothing I can do to control that. So, I mean, I, I guess the book is really about holding on and letting go. Um, But I could never write about that without, you know, writing about my childhood of like holding on and letting go, as well as my adulthood of, you know, having lived in the Midwest and having had to let that go and move here. Or, you know, having been married and divorced and, you know, like having to let that go too. So... Yeah, but, you know, my, hus- my ex-husband and I are still good friends. So that is more like uh, the kind of relationship you have, you know, where you let something go and it keeps returning in a different form.
0: Kyoko Mori, thank you for talking with me on
3: With Good Reason. Well, thank you so much. This, this has been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Kyoko Mori is a creative writing professor at George Mason University. She's the acclaimed author of many award-winning works of fiction and nonfiction, including Shizuko's Daughter, Yarn, The Dream of Water, and One Bird. Over the centuries, the same images and themes occur again and again in settler colonial literature. Rebecca Hightower Weaver explores how these themes were used to translate unknown areas to colonies and ultimately sell a harmful myth to would-be settlers. Rebecca Hightower Weaver is an English professor at Virginia Tech. Rebecca, I'm fascinated about your study of early colonial writings And you're saying that they're a way to translate unknown lands to would-be settlers. What kinds of writings are you talking about? And how did they communicate about other lands?
4: Well, we're talking about novels, of course, which were um, really widely read in the 19th century, in the 18th century. And we're talking about uh, diaries, poems, plays. A lot of people who weren't literate encountered stories through drama. The pantomime tradition was really big in the British Isles and in the colonies. And so a lot of stories that I talk about made their way into kind of a burlesque form that way. But really, it's, it's everything across the board. And your argument is that whether
0: people were doing this deliberately or inadvertently writing this way, they were perpetuating a myth about why it was okay to visit, inhabit, or conquer this far off land.
4: Yeah, that... um that even if people weren't consciously trying to to tell that story, they were telling it because one of the ways, I mean, psychologists say that humans, that we're constantly trying to justify what we do to ourselves and um, and that we tell stories where what we've done is not so bad. So I argue that people were um, were telling stories where they weren't taking land. They were um, the land was empty, or the, they needed to civilize the people that were there. They were doing God's work. Um or the even the land wanted them to take it, so there are stories where the land is personified, or where the animals invite the colonists to come in, where the animals prefer them. There are lots of stories, lots and lots where the indigenous people welcome the colonizers and are really happy to have them there and talk about how much better things are with the with the colonizers there and we're not also just we're not talking just about stories that people wrote in their, you know. In their diary or in their, uh, you know, novel, but also about why people consumed certain stories. So that's another part of my argument: is that some. Stories uh, like Robinson Crusoe are told so many times over and over again in different forms by different authors and with sometimes slightly different characters because they performed some uh, some important work for the reader and for the culture. They told a story that let people feel okay about what was uh, really an act of dispossession of taking land from somebody who lived there. And it was just that's that's really uncomfortable to think about and who doesn't want to be the hero of their own story. Yeah, Robinson Crusoe was fascinating to so many generations of people. When was that written and by whom? Uh, Daniel Defoe in 1719. Uh, it's a story about a man who he was a slaver. He was a slave owner. He uh, was in a ship and um, a storm hit and washed him up on an island where nobody else lived. So it wasn't through anything that he did that he colonized the space. It's almost as if God or nature brought him there and brought him to this space that needed to be colonized. And um, so what he did in the, in the novel is he goes about making it into his own little version of England. So he builds a house. Um, he domesticates animals animals. he plants crops. And um, Friday is uh, an indigenous person, the only one in the novel, and he is brought over to the island by indigenous people who are going to cannibalize him. And um, uh, Robinson Crusoe rescues him and teaches Friday everything. He teaches him how to speak, he teaches him how to cook, he teaches him how to plant. And the ironic thing is, of course, that Friday is from the next island over and so he would have known how to do all of those things already and he would have known how to do them better in that space than Robinson Crusoe but you can't have the colonized teaching the colonizer how to do things it has to be one way Um, and so that story that fantasy of colonization that's a powerful fantasy and Robinson Crusoe was published many 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 hundreds of times um, you know in its original form in um, adapted forms because there was no copyright at that time
0: what other kinds of mistranslations of colonial lands did
4: you find in your research? There are also lots of books that are more directly about colonizing, where they were uh, created to sell the idea of colonizing to people, to, to people in England and Ireland and other places in Europe. Uh, and they were, and of course, the the, the the places that were British colonies were competing with each other to get settlers to come there. And so, those are really interesting to look at as well. How people are are saying, if you come here, look, we don't have as many indigenous people that you have to fight off, or you don't have those pesky Africans that you have to worry about, or the climate is better here. And in one case, a book trying to sell settlers on coming to New Zealand actually changed the map proportions. So it looks like New Zealand is closer to England than it was, so they wouldn't feel like they were that there was any reason not to come to New Zealand and go to Canada or the U.S. or somewhere else. One of the other fascinating things you look into in your
0: work is a kind of translation across time of more subtle things, the people hmm. who are actually the settlers write. And you see in their writings often guilt and complicity. Tell me about that. When did you notice that?
4: Um, oh gosh, that's a good question. I'm not sure when I noticed guilt and complicity, I was reading a bunch of these subtler narratives and noticed that some of them were very clear about admitting that there was a problem with what they were doing. I mean, they talked about this being a, being problematic. And then there were some that seemed to be very much denying that. And then there were a lot in the middle that seemed to be more mixed and more wrestling with this issue of, um, is this a good thing to do? Is it okay to take this land that belongs, that there's someone else who lives here? Um, so Thomas Need, uh, like many. Uh, settlers uh, who were literate. I mean, of course, there were more settlers who weren't literate and didn't write about their experience, but he was literate. And so he was keeping a diary. And so he came to the land that had been given him by the British crown. And so one of the first things that he did was to survey it. And so he had a few men helping him survey the land. And he um, Buy some food from the Indians who he says were were camped there as usual, and so it's interesting in that moment to think that you know what who were camped there as usual what that what that phrase does that it's not that they live there, it's that they're camped there. So it makes it in that text turns their takes their land ownership and makes it into something temporary, even though they were there as usual. And so he buys uh, meat from them. Um, And then uh, a few pages later, he questions, uh, I wonder if they would have thought that I was the interloper instead of them. And so it's interesting to have that moment, those two moments so close together, where you have a text dispossessing someone and then the, um, the writer actually wondering, having that moment of, gosh, am I the one who's dispossessing them instead? But my argument is that you can really see In these texts, moments of slippage, in some of these texts, moments where someone is aware of what they're doing, but then it's uncomfortable, and so they don't linger on it. They move back into the typical story of building a house and planting crops, those acts of stewardship that were used as a way to uh, solidify the ownership of the land. Do you ever get pushed back? About reading these ideas into older texts? Yes, um, and I can understand why. I mean, there are people who think that, um, that this was inevitable, that it's wrong to, um, to look back and to, and to say that people in the 19th or even 18th centuries could see that things that they were doing was wrong. Um, that's, that's why I'm interested in these texts, is to say, look— They didn't want to think about it even any more than we do today. But you can see people writing and and, and talking about that. There's it's problematic to take someone else's land and to to colonize it. Um, And so uh, I get that argument. I get what are we supposed to do now? There's no way to go back and do anything different, which is which is true. Um, uh, And also, uh, you're trying to make me feel guilty and there's nothing to feel guilty about. Um, You know, my ancestors worked hard for this space. These are people today who are um, resisting the idea that, uh, that we should feel anything but okay with the world that we have today. But we can do better. Well, Rebecca Weaver-Hightower,
0: thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very
4: much, this was a, this was a pleasure.
0: Rebecca Hightower-Weaver is an English professor at Virginia Tech. Her most recent book is Cinematic Settlers, The Settler Colonial World in Film. The first Resonate Podcast Festival takes place October 14 and 15 in Richmond, Virginia. The workshops and performances feature Sharon Mashihi of Appearances and Nick Vanderkolk of Love & Radio. ResonatePodfest.com Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. uvahealth.com With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance and to Maynard Scales of WNSB. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.